Hello and welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. This is episode 61. We're your hosts, Parker Dillon. And Stephen Craig. If you guys enjoyed listening to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, please let others know about us. Tell a coworker, a loved one, a friend, or share it on social media. In quotes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we might reward your love by sending you a free koozie. Uh, so listen in uh, for a, uh, a code word that we will have going on during the, the podcast. If you, if you hear the co- code word, um, which we will call out, and you email us the code word, we can send you off a koozie for some, for some uh, MacFab swag. And so the, the email address is podcast at MacFab.com. And make sure to include the code word that's right. and your address. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that, that's right. Dude. We can't email physical goods yet. We're almost there. Yeah. Our developers are working really hard at that. So, yeah, podcast at macfab.com <laughs> is, is our contact. Uh, if you want to just say hello or, or tell us about something that you've been, uh, a project you've been working on or uh, suggestions on the show or just, you know, say hi. Hello. <laughs> okay, anyways, um, so last week yeah. I was talking about the Raspberry Pi LVDS project. Yep. And uh, so I, I got that working, as I said last week, and I started working on the compute module now. So this is like a step up, more, you know, embedding more of the goodies into a PCB, basically. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I designed a 200-pin SODIM connector, which is what they use for laptop memory. Mm-hmm. And that's what the that's the format that the compute module for the Raspberry Pi three is in, and so I, I built the whole um, footprint and eagle and all that stuff, made the symbol, all that stuff, got that all done. That must have taken a while. Uh, yeah, a lot of copy and paste. <laughs> a lot of copy and paste. Um, and then I dropped it into the schematic, and I made all basically I netlisted it out, and so that's all done. And I've actually. I spent an hour just reviewing the netlist coming off the sodium connector and verifying with like three different Raspberry Pi three sources to make sure it was all good. The official source and alternative source. And then I actually used the data sheet that they use for their like compute module IO board. Mm. So I made sure they all matched and everything was good. So we're good there. And for that sodium connector, I'm using the TI connectivity part 1473149-4. So. so look it up if you're interested. Yeah, if you go to Mauser and type <laughs> if that you in. you want to go see a 200-pin connector. Yeah, a 200-pin connector. <laughs> um, Our listeners are the only people who would actually like go type that in and be like, ooh, what is that? What is that connector? And then for the uh, and I put the LVDS chip on it, which is the DS90C365A, which I talked about last week. Um, so that's on the board, too. Um, I have that all netlisted correctly with the correct pins on the compute module, and it was it was a lot of e- it was pretty easy to do that from what I currently have because they call the GPIO pins the same thing on both, except I think it was pins, uh, ooh, was it pins um, twenty seven and twenty eight on the Raspberry Pi three are called they're reserved pins, but for, you connect to them to output your um your pixel clock and data enable oh okay for for this ovds chip yeah 
Um, and so I had to actually go and dig and figure out what they actually call that under the hood. And it's GPIO zero and one. Oh, well, how convenient. Yeah, how convenient. <laughs> so, yeah, I wonder how a, they chose those ones. Yeah, no, it, it took a bit, but I basically dug under the hood and, and found those pins. Sure. And connected those up. And hopefully that works. Um, like the first time around? Yeah. Like, well, the first board worked the first time around. Right. How lucky is that? You just plug it in. Yeah. yeah. That never happens. <laughs> it actually was, it was seriously like, I, like, I changed enough of the config.txt code in the Raspberry Pi to basically tell it to use these pins as the data display interface uh, RGB 666 mode. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mess at all with the timings and it worked. It like displayed on the screen. I'm like, that's impossible. <laughs> That's just crazy. When I build a circuit now, like the first time I, I fire it up, I just have the expectation that I'm going to have to do something to it. To it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but no, you got lucky. Yeah. You got real lucky. Yeah, real lucky. <laughs> and all I had to do was basically I, well, I went into the dash sheet and, and pulled the right timings and plugged those in, and the screen looked even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you had to do something to it, but it's just making it better than it already was. Well, yeah, was. it was just code, though. It wasn't right. like I wasn't changing anything on the board. Um, so yeah, the, the LVDS chip is all net listed up correctly. That's all good. And the connectors for it, that's all good. Um, and to control the backlight on the, on my test board, I just pulled the backlight enable pin high. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to be able to control it through the Raspberry Pi so I can dim the display. Just some kind of PWM thing. Yeah. So I'm going to use the PWM function that's in the Raspberry Pi. You can PWM a GPI port. Nice. Um, and I think it's GPIO 40 that it uses like PWM zero. They have one PWM pin? Two. Huh. They have two IO that, that can that have dedicated, that's like their alternate function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're going, I'm going to try to use that. And then if I can get that to work, then I want to write like a script that runs in the background. And so you can use a function key to dim the, like on a laptop, basically. Right. That should work. Yeah, that, should, that shouldn't be too hard. Um, and then other things I need to do on this board is that I need to do the whole power circuitry, <laughs> design all that. So it needs 1.8 volts, 3.3 volts, and 12 volts for the backlight. Oh, that shouldn't be too bad, though. No. Um, the 1.8 volts isn't too bad. It's the 3.3 volt line it needs to be a Haas power supply because it needs to be able to supply the screen, basically all the transistors in that you know 1366 by 768 display. How much, how much juice does a screen pull? About an amp on that line. Hmm. That's Damn. quite a bit. Yeah, that's that's pretty beefy. Um, yeah, so I need to make basically a beefy linear power supply on the, on the board for that. Yeah. That's nice and quiet. Um, I need to add an SD card. That's easy because I already have that footprint built. Uh, an HDMI port. And I know I'm have, I have LVDS on this, but it's just in case I yeah. want to use this board for something else. Sure. I have the HDMI port, so I need to make that connector. Um, USB connector on it and then put a usb hub on it because the raspberry pi only has one uh usb channel mm-hmm. uh, usb host channel and so you have to basically put a hub on it hub chip right so you can have more stuff connected to it um break out all the pins i don't use because you never know yeah and right. uh put test points on clock signals and are other gonna, stuff that you want to you know click onto. are you going to break all the pins out to just like through hole Holes? No, I'm gonna do it to you know 2.54 millimeter headers. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. gotcha. I'm just gonna break them, but eventually not populate the headers, right? To save cost. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for this first board, this is just I need like I'm not going to connect GPI 40 right to the PWM. Mm. I'm going to build this board, put it together, make sure and see if I can get a PWM signal out of GPI 40 and then just basically jumper that over to the PWM signal and see if I can control the backlight. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. So you're making a dev board. Yeah, I'm making a, a extensive like you know, dev boards are designed to be like all purpose. Yeah. This is like there's like three things I need to test out with this thing. There's a highly <laughs> specific dev board right. for three things I need to test. And if they do them all right, then I can do the next version which is basically rolls that all into yeah, the strip it, strip everything off and just hard connect everything. Hard connect. Yeah. Um, so hopefully by next podcast, I have the schematic done. That's a lot of stuff to do by next podcast. Yeah, well, the power stuff, most of it's designed in the part-wise. Because a lot of times, most well, most of the pro, uh, thing is designing the parts. Mm-hmm. That takes the longest, in my opinion, for most of my projects. You mean like footprints and patterns and things like yeah. that? Yeah, and making sure symbols are set up right and all that stuff is good. Right. Actually netlisting everything together, that's pretty easy. Well, if you have an idea for what you're doing, then then drawing it out is just a matter of just a handful of clicks, really. Yeah. Handful of clicks. That's the week's code word. Handful of clicks. Yep. <laughs> code word. <laughs> a handful of clicks. So, Stephen. Yeah. Stephen, you have a challenge. That's right. Based off your synthesizer. That's right. So, uh, as as our listeners are probably getting sick of hearing, uh, <laughs> I have been ha- talking about this thing for like. 30 episodes. <laughs> Honestly, it's been a lot of episodes. So, yes, Synthesizer, still doing that, uh, still making it, uh, made made some good progress this week. Uh, and uh, Feature Creeped, Feature Creep creeped pretty hard this week. Uh, yeah, this and, is well, okay, pretty so, bad. Th- so, so here's <laughs> the thing. It, it, it's, a, it's a Feature Creep, but it's also, uh, it was, a lot of things spawn out of Parker and I just sitting in the engineering department talking about just random crap. Uh, so this idea that I have here kind of, kind of spawned out of us just, just chatting. And then I was like, why not just pose this as a challenge to our listeners? And if anyone is interested or willing to participate, then we can involve them. Uh, so what I've been doing in the last like two weeks or so is, is kind of building the synth part by part, but also designing the front panel that the user is going to interface with. Um, and I've, I've spent a good long while making it look pretty cool. And then I had the idea of instead of having knobs that just point to, you know, dashes around the knobs, what if there was a ring of LEDs around every knob that as you turn them up, the, the LEDs illuminate. Yeah, they sweep up. They sweep like a bar graph, but a, but a, but a ring bar graph. Yeah. And then, and then I quickly sent him a link to a dev board that does this already. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The well, only, kind of. the, the only issue with that is that it is these, my, none of my knobs are rotary encoders. I'm not getting digital information off of these. Every single one is controlling an analog signal. So the design challenge I have is to create a ring of LEDs that surrounds a analog control knob, which is basically just a potentiometer and they light up according to the position of the knob. That's one of those analog control knob instead of potentiometer. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a that's a that's a that's a wank word in yeah. in, uh, in in the industry. Isn't it also? Was it um, 
the adjustability of it. It's not discreet, is it? Oh, yeah. That data sheet. Oh, gosh, that was like in the first couple episodes. That was like three or four. Yeah, we, we found a data sheet that said the, the, the accuracy of a potentiometer was, and this is word for word, theoretically infinite. Yeah. That's I, amazing. I, I about fell out of my chair when Steven said that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a total wank word. So, uh, okay, so I have a list of requirements here, and we'll post these requirements. If anyone is interested in jumping in and designing one of these things, we would love to see what you have. Uh, or just ideas. Yeah, ideas. I mean, so I have a design that I've already basically created for this, but I would love to see what other people have to come up with. So let me run through the requirements real quick. Uh, the circuit must connect to a potentiometer, and uh, it can or most likely will be a dual-gang version, uh, so two potentiometers in, in one. So that way you get a clean signal and you don't interfere with your signal path. Right, because the signal that I'm, that I'm pushing through is, is random, um, and I need to be able to access one of the potentiometers. So the other potentiometer that's in this dual-gang version can control the LEDs. Uh, so the second requirement is that the ring of LEDs must be on a 12 mil millimeter radius. Um, the whole circuit cannot be larger than 1.2 inches by 1.2 inches by 1.2 inches, a cube that size. Uh, the PCB can solder directly to the pins on the potentiometer, uh, if so be. That's, that's easy. Um, it can use more than one PCB if needed. The color of the LEDs do not matter, although green and red is preferable. The number of LEDs across this sweep, uh, 16 is a minimum and 32 is a maximum, so whatever works out. Uh, and then the LEDs are to be arranged on a 300-degree arc because the potentiometer doesn't turn a full 360. It turns 300 degrees. So uh, the lowest potentiometer is at 240 degrees, and the highest potentiometer in terms of fully clockwise rotation is at negative 60 degrees. Is that with a normal Cartesian plane that's degrees? Right. That's okay. right. Yeah, no, I chose I chose those because that's what people are probably used to, yeah. those uh, those degrees. Um, so the, uh, the circuit's going to be powered by an external 5-volt power supply, so all that needs to happen is just some pads on the board that I can supply 5 volts and ground to. Uh, and then the last requirement, which might be the most important, is do it as cheap as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Macfab house parts are actually pretty cheap. That's a suggestion there. So if anyone is interested in jumping in on this, um, they, 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 we, we have the design requirements there. We'll post them up on the, uh, the show notes, which you mm -hmm. can get at, uh, um, on macfab.com. You can find uh, in the blog section, there's the podcast stuff. And if you have any questions, uh, you can hit us up at podcast at macfab.com. If anyone's interested in, in designing this with me, I will certainly be using this in the synthesizer, so it could be fun. Yeah, one thing I'm looking at is, um, like, minimizing the number of parts. Yeah. And and total square inch of fiberglass used would be, that we I'm more interested in. Well, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if we get more than one design, maybe we can go through and kind of pick them apart and see what, what people were thinking. Yeah, because much, there's a thousand ways to do this. how terrible yours is. Oh yeah, mine is mine is garbage. <laughs> My idea is garbage. Let's just put it that way. From is yours the, the op amp comparator one? Well, I thought about that because that one. I don't know. I, I I go I go to the analog solution first in my mind, and I don't get me wrong. If I wanted thirty two or I'm sorry thirty one LEDs in uh, in the ring, and that would require thirty one op amps 
Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> of course, my game. mind is like, that would be fun, but not practical in any yeah, way, shape, up, form. Take up, the packages just take up so much space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a stupid idea, but it's still, I like the I wonder I like if they it. make any, op, like, discrete op amps that come in packages that go in, like, you know, you see all these, like, the DFN-style packages that mm-hmm. go into cell phones and stuff. Yeah. If anyone makes discrete op amps like that. Oh, I'm sure they do. Um. I'm, yeah, I'm sure a quick a quick search on Mauser would pop up some op amps. But but when what I've found is when op amps get in stupid packages like that, there's they're usually really specific and they're usually really expensive, like super high fast op amps or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so. low noise or you want yeah, as noisy or as possible. like their gain bandwidth is like out to five thousand gigahertz or something like that. But you I'm, know, something dumb. I have another question on this uh, dual gain potentiometers. What yeah. kind of signal crosstalk do you get on that? You know, I think actually the the there is a data sheet that calls that out. Uh, so the way that I've kind of designed it is that the signal goes through one of the potentiometers, yep. and then I have a zero to five volt DC signal on the other. So it really doesn't matter uh, for signal crosstalk because you got DC on one side. You say that though, but if someone uses like a really fast LED, um, you know, driver that's using a switching frequency that's going to put that frequency on that 5-volt line back up and could be injected into your signal. Well, whatever circuit you have to determine where the position of the potentiometer is should probably average out noise and have some hysteresis in it so that it's not, you know, there's not LEDs bouncing well, no, all over the place. Well, no, because they're going to PWM all the LEDs, so not all lit up. All well, time. I was talking about two adjacent LEDs next to each other. You wouldn't want it bouncing between Oh, no, the no, two. I'm talking about just... If you have all of them lit up, yeah, it's going to be the driver, an LED driver, is constant current, so it's turning the voltage on and off to keep that that, that current the same. Mm. And so you're driving at like you know 20 kilohertz or whatever. Yeah, however fast you need to. I, I doubt that's going to be a problem. <laughs> it's Turn this thing on and just. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I should. I, you know, I, I, I did not put that as a requirement. I just realized the current draw on this thing. Uh, so right now, I have a plan to put twenty one of these into my synth module. Oh boy! I do not want them pulling like an amp each. Uh, so uh, let me arbitrarily choose. Uh, it cannot pull more than sixty milliamps. Let's just put it like that. Uh, so the whole module, all the LEDs, cannot pull more than sixty milliamps. With they're all lit up. Uh, yeah, if they're all lit up. Does yours do that? No. My, <laughs> mine does not. Mine mine pulls under 60. So they, I, I just realized that putting that stipulation makes the design way harder. Yep. <laughs> I should have put that in there. Okay. Yes. Cannot pull more than 60 milliamps as a whole at any one point in time. So, yeah. Let us know if you're interested <laughs> in taking the challenge. Do Steven's hard work for him. Well, I've already done it. (laughs) (laughs) So on to the RFOs. On to the RFO. So the topics this week are revealing Capcom's custom silicon security that we found on Hackaday. Mm -hmm. NXP chip checks your booze found on Electronics Weekly. And IoT startup bricks customers garage door intentionally (laughs) found on Hackaday. (laughs) So... Capcom. Yeah. So this was back in the heyday of arcades. So late 80s, early 90s? Yes. Um, so they developed a new, the background is they basically developed a new 
arcade system called the uh, CPS2 mm-hmm. that had a suicide circuit in it. So it basically it basically prevented people from tampering with the hardware. Yeah. And if you tampered with the hardware, it basically killed the the system. Right. Yeah. And so and how they did that was basically the game code was encrypted on the on the EPROMs mm-hmm. and at runtime it would decrypt the game code and it stored the key. I think it was like a 64-bit key or a 32-bit key, something like that. Yeah. It stored that in volatile RAM that had to be powered up with a with a coin, with a cell. coin cell battery. Yeah. I think it was actually a soldered-on lithium battery or something oh, like okay. that. Okay. Um, but but a long life, like a like a 10-year battery. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. Yeah. Um, and it also prevented there was a there was a six-pin connector on on the board that looks like, you know, a programming header or right. a JTAG header. Right. If you plugged into it, it automatically bricked the system. <laughs> <laughs> Capcom was proud of their games. Um, and they did this because back then um, it was really rampant in terms of, of piracy was terrible in terms of in the arcade industry. Basically, someone would buy one game, rip the EPROMs off, and then stick the EPROMs into a cheaper cabinet like a game that wasn't doing as well, mm-hmm. and then slap new graphics on it, and now they got the brand new game that everyone wants. You know, I, okay, so funny enough, uh, a guy at uh, at my first job, he gave me uh, a Street Fighter II arcade cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I shouldn't say gave. His wife said that it had to get out of their garage, and at the <laughs> time I had a big workshop so i said yeah just bring it to the workshop um so so we put it in the workshop and i played street fighter on that a bunch and then uh uh one day i opened the back of the cabinet and it said miss pac-man on the inside yeah. uh somebody completely repurposed the entire cabinet and redid the graphics oh no they probably just put different eproms in it or they put new a different board set in it Probably, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I looked at the board set. It didn't have, like, uh, socketed. Yeah, so they probably stuff. ripped it out because uh, Pac-Man's an Atari game. Mm-hmm. And so they probably put, they probably ripped everything out, and they probably used a similar monitor and similar controls. Sure. And they just slammed in a Street Fighter 2 board set. In yeah. And then rewired everything. Yeah, that stuff was actually pretty common back then. Mm-hmm. And so to prevent all that stuff, they made... The suicide system is what it's been called. A hardware suicide. Hardware suicide. Um, and there's a and then about, I think, fall last year, they came, uh, a guy came up with, I can't remember the guy's name. He found out a way what, to use an Arduino and a lot of code and some hardware tricks to basically unbrick the system. Mm-hmm. Basically, you, um, you have to rewrite over some of, this, of the stuff and then re-put in a key into the vault of RAM, and then, bam, you're good to go. How do you know the key, though? Um, I can't remember how they figured it out. Interesting. Okay. Because um, that key's stored somewhere on there. Yeah, well, it's stored in vault of RAM. Right. Um, so you've got to yank that out. Well, you can't if it's bricked because it's not there anymore. Yeah, uh, so, someone must have leaked it or something like no, that. No, no, they just cracked it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> so towards the end of the life of the system, around 94-ish, mm-hmm. um, they were they, they they basically some researchers figured out how to stream the unencrypted code off. So as it was decrypting, mm. they were able to read the data in, mm. and that's how a lot of basically if your system bricked, you went and bought, uh, I guess pre-programmed EPROMs or you programmed the 
e-proms again mm -hmm. with unencrypted game code of the same game, and you can get your game working again. Gotcha. It was uh, called um, Phoenixine aboard. That's what they called it. <laughs> That's an app name. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting that, you know, we don't really have too much of that nowadays where it's it's hardware isn't really protected like that anymore. It's more about the software stuff. That's right. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they go that far out of the way, especially even with the, the programming header, making that such that it breaks it. Yeah. I bet you it was like a special pro you had to do something when you first plugged in with a you know right voltages or something oh back in the day when it. you had to like hit it with 12 volts first and then drop it down to like negative five or whatever oh it was. god i hated I that was hated one of the, some of the first picks were like that yep yep and it sucked yep that's why you had to pay for their like 300 programming. programming boards or eprom or eprom programmers yep that's with those fancy ziff connectors so that's crazy. That's that's crazy that Capcom yeah. chose but, to do that. But um, it reminds me a lot of our, our reflow oven that we currently use at Macrofab. It's the, uh, the Speedline um, Electrovert that we have. Well, the fact that you cracked into it? Well, no, what happened was the... Because we bought this oven used, what, two years ago or something like that? Oh, yeah, something like that. And so it, we were using the reflow boards, and the onboard lithium battery that runs the plc mm -hmm. you know just crapped out it ran out of juice yep and so yeah basically one day we went to turn it on turn it on and nothing showed up on the screen and uh started looking and basically going through the debug stuff on the yeah, we got the manuals with the with the uh oven and stuff and it said um you have to. Re it says you have to replace the battery every so often, mm -hmm. and it's like, well, we didn't. We didn't read the manual, <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't know that. Apparently, yeah. So you have to replace the battery every so often, and so we popped the new battery in. Still nothing. Hmm. So on that, and that started looking into that PLC model, and its ladder logic is stored in volatile RAM <laughs> that's backed up by that lithium so you battery. You lose everything. We lost everything, uh -oh. and so. Fortunately, um, after lots of calling the speed line, because we kept getting salespeople, yeah. and they're just and they have up, no clue. Just hang up, yeah. and we eventually got through to an engineer, and the guy's like, "Yeah, I'll just throw it up on the FTP." And so he threw, he even threw. Thankfully, he threw up the the software package that we needed to actually program it too, because mm. we had to, we had to have the the actual configuration data, and we had to have the the software. To do it. Yeah. And he sent us a link to where we can buy a cable. Wow. Yeah. He's so a, here was, he's it a was a nice awesome. dude. Yeah. And so we got it up and running. Because he knows. He knows what it's like to be there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this was, it was awesome. Like, it, well, that engineer is awesome. But it, th this situation reminds me of that. Basically, like, think about if you own one of these and turn it on one day and the battery is dead. Yeah. It's game over. Yeah. So a lot of people on the Hackaday article or complain like, oh yeah, Capcom was greedy. I'm like, well, when you look at it, they still serviced, like, sure, they're, they're only greedy if you have to buy another unit from Capcom. Yeah, that would be, right. that would be ridiculous. Basically, the battery dies, you have to buy, oh, you tampered with it, you have to buy a new one, which wasn't the case. They actually serviced the CPS2 system well beyond its 
you know, original lifespan. Yeah. Um, so they would unbreak your system for you. Mm. Um, I think it was purely just to keep the piracy out. Yeah. yeah. Of, of the which problem. Is, which is valid. Um, but, I mean, it is valid where, yeah, people have the right to protect their IP. But should that impact the longevity? Because now, if you ship the CSP2 board to Capcom, they'll be like, what is this? <laughs> um, but it, should that actually limit the lifespan of your product? Artificially or non-artificially? Well, I mean, it, it can, but it's worth, whoever's purchasing it, it's worth them knowing about that before they like purchase the it. Like the reflow oven. It actually right. said to do it, but it didn't say why it was important. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And actually, the funny thing is, when you go in there, buy, okay, okay, so this is actually a little dig at, at Speedline, I guess, <laughs> is there is an option to set a voltage cutoff on the lithium battery to warn you but it's defaulted off. Hmm. So if that was on, it would have beeped at us to replace the lithium battery. And we would have been like, eh, I'm not going to replace it right now. <laughs> yeah, <I'm not> gonna <laughs> Why should I replace that thing? <laughs> Next week, crap. crap. Oven is down for a week. Yeah, it was down for four days. Oh, wow. That's a long time to have a reflow oven done. Well, it but, was, but it was, it was Yeah, it was way earlier. If we were down for four days now, that would be yikes. I think, I think like everyone would just be like, just jumping off buildings and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would not be good. <laughs> yeah. That's our lifeblood right there. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty cool. Hit up the link in the podcast description. It's pretty cool stuff. Yep. Um, all the history behind that system is, is very interesting. All right. Topic two. NXP chip checks your booze. Um, this so this one's is pretty cool. This is one that you found. Yeah, yeah. So uh, near-field communication. NFC. NFC technology applied to bottles of alcohol. Mm. Uh, this, this, was a, this was an article that we found on Electronics Weekly. So um, the, the, this, this was it's sort of a speculation article. It's not like a direct you know, article saying that this is happening. It was, it was more of like an idea. This could happen. It could happen, yeah. So uh, using NXP's NTAG 213, which is near-field communication little antenna yeah, it's guy. similar to an rfid uh, chip right Slightly basically fancier but yeah, yeah. You, you you ping this thing at high frequency it powers up over uh, yeah. a distance and it and it does some things but the the whole point that this article was talking about uh was having it such that you can detect um uh, like anti-tamper on on bottles of alcohol but the, the thing about the anti-tamper is we already have so the anti-tamper they're talking about is still like basically it, when you try to remove the label, the label gets damaged, right. and the NFC chip stops working. Yep, it's one of those. But we have physical confirmation that this label is ripped, like we already do. So it doesn't actually fix the things. I guess that's harder to replace. Well, and that was the point. That you could serialize the NFC chip, and if someone breaks it, well, then they don't know what the NFC. Ch- Serial number was. That's right. And that's kind of what they were going and at. And you can encrypt the serial number, and so that basically no one can copy it. Right, right. So it's it's a matter of tracking. It's a matter of uh, being able to detect tampering. Uh, you know, uh, actually, so what I learned, I didn't know this, but alcohol piracy is a thing. Uh, there, there is, there are companies Yo-ho that... Yo-ho and a bottle of rum. That's right, exactly. Fake rum. Literally, Yo-ho <laughs> and a, a technological bottle of rum. <laughs> 
But I, I, I don't know. I think I think that's pretty cool because so, so the idea is is embedding these antennas in the label. You can't you can't tell, but you can scan your bottle and see where it's been, who's had it, that kind of stuff. It's basically, you'd have to connect some kind of network to be able to do this. But but still, I don't know. That's kind of cool. IoT idea. alcohol. That's right. <laughs> cool idea. <laughs> I always like seeing more of this kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I, I assume that we're going to see a ton more in the future. I mean, yeah. this is going to be more in everything. It basically, when they keep driving the price down for this stuff, eventually, if they can get, basically, it's only a little bit more than a paper label, there's no point. Why or if not you have it. a printer that does both at the same time. Oh, man, that's some pie-in-the-sky stuff. That's right. It prints and embeds this stuff in there? A 3D no, a, a regular flatbed printer that also lays down like an NFC chip. It's a fab and a printer, a silicon fab and a printer in one box. In one box. Get on that, Parker. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Someone billion dollar idea right there. Yeah. <laughs> you can have it for free. Just remember, you got it from Macrofab Engineering Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He's giving his like acceptance speech for like Nobel Peace Prize. That's right. I remember the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. The, the Nobel Peace Prize because uh, because we can track booze now. Yeah. <laughs> um, Last topic. Last topic. Uh, IoT startup bricks customers' garage door intentionally. This another, is crazy. Yeah, another Hackaday article. Um, I don't say it's crazy. It's it's one of those another thing to think about when you go to an IoT device. Well, actually, I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. Another thing to uh, to think about when you purchase something in that you know you do not necessarily have control over. Over, you don't uh, own you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you own the physical side of it, but its actual functionality you do not own. Correct. Um, they call it hardware licensing nowadays. Right. It's a software licensing. Like, no, um, I'm sorry, not licensing. Um, hardware subscription service. Instead of software subscription, like the new, yeah, how they're doing with Eagle and um, Autodesk, and they're all moving to subscription services. Yep. Which is great because you get updates for everything. Mm-hmm. I still don't know how it really works for hardware making hardware better. The software side, it kind of makes sense. And software, I mean, I understand why some people don't like it because you don't, you know, you can't keep a version forever. You know, I heard someone argue the other day that uh, video game consoles, you don't actually own them. You're you're sort of renting them. And, I'm, and I was like, that that sounds wrong. That's I, I think you buy them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you buy well, them. Well, that was the whole thing when the PS3 got rid of their other OS functionality where you couldn't install Linux on it. Yeah. Uh, and that was a whole big lawsuit about that mm. and whether or not you owned or didn't own the PS3. Right, right. Um, but yeah. but it's not – It's uh, I, I haven't gone through the user license or anything like that, but I'm pretty sure there's Who nothing does? in there that says you are renting this or borrowing it for a cost. I think it's basically you have to – you own it unless you do these X things and then we can sue you. Yeah, oh, of course. That's whatever user license agreement is. Okay, so what what happened in this, in so this situation? So the, the company's called Garagit, which I think is Garage and Gadget. Garagit. Garagit. Something Slam like that. Slam together. Yeah. Um, there was an unhappy customer who was complaining that his garage door or Wi-Fi-controlled garage door didn't work with his iPhone, and he sent very nasty emails to the company, like, 
chewed them out. Well, he was also posting on the forums. Posted on the forums yeah. and did a bad Amazon review. Yeah. And basically, the company... Well, it sounds like the company was basically fed up with this customer yep. and basically turned off his IP off the server. Right. Yeah. Well, he was he was borderline being a troll. May I, I don't I don't know about that, but it sounds I'll put it this way is it sounds like the guy was being, you know, an asset. A little unreasonable. Okay. A little unreasonable because I don't I don't know if this 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 device this uh, the Wi-Fi garage door thing even works with iPhones. But if it, if it didn't work with iPhones and you tried to explain that to an irrational customer. Yeah, it wouldn't work. Yeah, it wouldn't work. <laughs> it but wouldn't. anyways, what they did was also completely unreasonable and terrible. Because they, they basically blocked his IP. Mm-hmm. And so his garage door couldn't talk to the Internet. And so that he couldn't actually use his garage door. Right. Yeah, so he couldn't open his garage door. <laughs> so, so you know, and that actually brings up a good point. If you scan, like, oh, let's say you buy this at Home Depot or whatever, you scan it. Are at at the time that you scan it and you purchase it, are you signing a license agreement to say they are allowed to block me at any time that they want? Yeah, it's 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 also another thing. To think about is like, what if instead of this instance? Okay, so basically, all they have to do is block your IP, and your garage door doesn't work. Which sucks. Yeah. Right. Well, what if the f- that f- company just went out of business? Now everyone's garage doors don't work. Didn't we talk about that a while back? Yeah. With uh, what was it? A air conditional controller? Or something? Oh. Was it Nest? No, it wasn't Nest. It was a. You're right. It was a. No, it was a home automation company. Right. Who went out of business and basically every they, other unit didn't work. Right. They shut down their servers. Yeah. So yeah. it 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 goes back to the point where. If you're buying an IoT device, there should be a local network option. Well, at the same time, like, be really wary about buying an IoT device for something that's critical. Critical for your life. <laughs> I mean, garage door isn't necessarily critical, but it's a really big it's something annoyance. That you use, most people use at least twice a day. Right. Leaving and coming home. Yeah. So it's it's pretty it's pretty high on the list. It's pretty high on the list of stuff that should just work. I mean, what if what if you had IoT controlled locks on your house, uh, on the doors oh, to your house? Oh, and one day the server and just the servers were and the company was like, sorry, when it went out of business, you know. Or what if just Comcast just had service interruption? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you really have to go to the bathroom, <laughs> and you're locked outside. And then there was an IoT toilet that just would not open, and it could not flush, and it's just, oh my gosh, no, why did no, I get all this IoT crap? Oh man, if you had an IoT <laughs> toilet and the service went down, but only the service that allowed it to flush. And so it just kept, kept filling up. <laughs> That's horrible. So, so the, the moral no of the story is, no or not the moral, the, once again, Parker and Steven shit all over IoT. Like that's that's oh, that's, that's like that's half the goes. stuff we do on the show. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I think that's kind of crazy, though. I mean, giving giving someone else the capability to shut you down at any time if they don't like you. I yeah. mean, he was being a nuisance. Let's be honest. This guy was, uh, but still, that doesn't deserve you to take away the guy's product. Right. 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 Uh, I mean, he owns the hardware. But at the same time, the funny thing is, they all, they, what they did was they shut down his access to the server. That doesn't necessarily stop him from posting online or no, giving Amazon reviews. Anything, it probably it makes, makes it worse. worse. Yeah, so I don't know what they were thinking here. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I don't think they were thinking. No, that's 
uh, well, I'm not going to install an IoT garage door opener on any of my <laughs> doors. You, will you ever install an IoT beer brewing setup? Only if I have sole capability of controlling, controlling it. it. Yeah. Then the internet goes down and you're like, no! Oh. And I'm like, turn on propane. Yeah. <laughs> propane and a bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that will wrap up the RFO for this week. Yep. And with that, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. This was episode 61. We were your hosts, Parker Doan. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.